I love the idea of backyard conservation, um, just kind of bringing nature to you, that you don't need to go out and find nature, that if you plant it, they will come. You're listening to the Feel Good Community Podcast. My name is Storm. And I'm Will. A few years ago, we began our journey towards learning more about sustainability, health, and wellness. The more we learned, the more we couldn't believe that this vital information wasn't mainstream knowledge. These simple yet effective ways to heal our bodies and save our planet are being drowned out by the latest pop culture noise. Together, we began to change our lifestyle to help heal our bodies, our brains, and our planet. We have become deeply passionate about sharing this knowledge, whether it's a book we're reading, interviews from leading experts, or even just personal anecdotes. We want you to know about it. And most importantly, we want you to take this knowledge and apply it to your own family and community. All that being said, welcome to the Feel Good Community Podcast. Welcome to today's episode of the Feel Good Community Podcast. This morning, we're sitting down with Hannah Mather. She's joining us today from Central Florida. Hannah is a beekeeper, pollinator, advocate, and just an all-around wealth of information. Whether you want to learn more about bees, composting, gardening, she pretty much does it all. How are you today? What are things looking like in Florida? I'm great. Uh, things are pretty good here. This is the best time of year for weather in Florida. Not too hot. It's the time of year where we get to brag to the rest of the country. So, <laughs> yeah, humidity is not too bad right now, huh? No, finally nice. So, can you go ahead and introduce yourself um, for people that don't know you? Just give them your elevator pitch. All right. Well, I'm Hannah. I'm from Hannah's Honeycomb. I'm located in Central Florida. I was um, originally from upstate New York. Um, I've been interested in animals as long as I can remember. I loved bees as a child. I would always go to the observation hives at the local Natural uh, Museum of Natural History. Um, I was actually pre-vet in college. Um, I've worked with animals of all shapes and sizes. And after working in labs for a while, I wanted to be more hands-on and kind of traded out my microscope for a camera, found (laughs) bees, and it's really just kind of exploded from there. The bees have kind of been that connection of all my passions um, from the science, um, sustainability, the insects, um, and the plants. So the bees kind of tie it all together for me. And so you do beautiful macro photography. Thank you. It's been really fun getting to dive into that and trying to document and show people what I love of bees. Yeah, what, um, what, do you, can you hear that echo? I can't hear an echo. Okay, that's weird. All right, sorry about that. <laughs> okay. Um, we're just having some, some, uh, audio issues on our end, but, all right. <laughs> um, yeah, so what, what lens and camera do you use? I'm just curious. 
That, so most of my pictures I use, um, I've got a 30 millimeter macro lens. I have a mm. Sony camera, um, but okay. some of them are really just an iPhone picture. Um, you can get even cheap, um, like a little lens you can put over your iPhone camera to get closer. Um, oh, I'm always wow. hesitant to recommend a certain lens or camera because sometimes, I mean, it can get so pricey and so... Um, extravagant yeah, yeah. and you don't necessarily need those to start off and I don't want people to always think like oh you have to spend crazy amounts of money to get started um you can really do so much with whatever you have yeah that, I mean that's true how that's one thing I wanted to ask you about like kind of the barrier to entry not so much of photography but to beekeeping um what I mean it seems like there's a lot that goes into it I've read a little bit about like the brood chambers and transporting queens and you know, especially all like the, the protective equipment, like the bee suits and all that stuff. How did you get involved with, like, how did you start your own? What was your first hive experience like? So ideally you'd like to find a local mentor. Um, where my bees were located, it's pretty much in the middle of nowhere and I couldn't find anybody super nearby, but I could find um, a, like the county over had a beekeepers association um, that I joined. And you can, if you're in the U.S., um, uh, your local county will have an extension office and you can call them and they'll put you in touch with the local beekeepers association. And oh, usually beekeepers cool. associations will have um, a mentorship program or like a group apiary um, where you can go and learn the basics and things like that. Um, but there are other options too. There are plenty of books. There are online courses you can take. And then as far as like registration of bees, it really varies depending on state. Here in Florida, we have a yearly inspection of our bees and a registration. And they check for um, certain illnesses and uh, certain breed, making sure that they're not um, becoming Africanized um, so that they, our gene pool doesn't become too aggressive down here. What is Africanizing? So there are a few different species of honeybees, and the ones that are typically used in the United States are Italian honeybees. There is another species of African honeybees that are um, better adapted to hot and dry climates, and they are more aggressive. They're colloquially known as killer bees. Um, I don't really like that term, but if you hear that term, that's kind of what they're talking about. And they're basically just a more aggressive honeybee that um, is a pro- more of a problem in hot areas like Florida, where they've kind of um, become endemic. And so they're kind of trying to keep those out um, from breeding with the domesticated Italian honeybees. So if you are inspected and they find that they do have African bees in your colonies, what, how, do they, how do they remedy that? Um, they would probably have you requeen um, because the whole genetics of your colony is based on the queen. So essentially you could replace the queen and within three weeks or so, that'll be replacing the genetics of your hive. Um, so oh, it really wow. depends on the extreme extremity. If they're very aggressive and a hazard to people at the moment, you'd probably have to destroy them. But if you could wait um, that time for them to kind of replace it with the other genes that would be the preferable option. So is the lifespan of the bee those three weeks? Um, that's is the 
So it's the beginning of the life cycle. It's 21 days from the time an egg is laid until an adult worker emerges. So that's the time where if you replace the queen in three weeks, then those emerging bees will then have the new genetics. Um, so then it would oh. take a couple of weeks after that before it really was um, more of the bees in the colony. But If the queen is the one that lays all the eggs how can, and the queen doesn't change, how can that queen's genetics change to become Africanized? Oh, that's a great question. So um, the queen actually, she will go out once in her life um, on a mating flight and she'll um, mate with dozens of drones in the local area. So those drone male bees um, can come from any of the colonies okay. um, that are out there. So there might be some Italian um, honeybees, some Africanized honeybees. And it, the funny thing with that is that they can actually kind of change um, then as she's laying eggs. So you might get kind of a season of the bees being very gentle um, where they're coming from a certain type of drone. And then suddenly it'll kind of be a shift and you'll kind of wonder what happened. Um, and it she can just, just be from the different genetics. Yeah, they're... Yeah. <laughs> Your options. yeah, I mean, there's a mix. Um, it's hard to tell, but yeah. So when they're testing genetically for these um, Africanized bees, they're actually testing the drones. Oh, okay, that makes sense. Yeah. So now that we're, I mean, I guess it's still kind of winter, but I know that I know Florida doesn't really struggle too much with extreme winters. But how, like, how do people insulate and make sure that their bees have enough food and everything like that during the winter seasons. I've always been really curious about that. Well, it's definitely important to leave enough um, honey for them, for their own resources. There's some calculators that you can do. Um, I don't know them off the top of my head since that's not exactly yeah. relevant to me, but um, yeah. I, I want to say it's like 50 pounds per brood chamber, um, something like that. Don't quote me on that, but you want to leave okay. um, enough honey and the bees actually are able to keep themselves. They cluster up in like a basketball size um, circle and keep that warm and keep the brood warm. And they can keep that um, uh, 95 degrees right in there. The biggest thing that oh, kills wow. bees isn't actually the cold, it's the moisture. So if there's moisture that gets in, um, that's more likely to kill them than the cold itself. Oh, wow. So, I never really sorry. thought about that. That's cool. Well, not cool for the bees, but it's interesting. <laughs> yes. Um, so what are some of the issues that bees and pollinators face? I mean, because well, we have the pesticides, like environmental, political habitat factors. I don't know. I feel like our pollinators are kind of having a hard time. Oh, uh, so yes, our pollinators are declining. And one of the biggest factors for that is habitat loss and forage loss. Um, we are land we are developing more land than ever before they're making converting things that used to be wildlife to lawns that don't have any flowers people yeah. rake up um people rake and that's the nesting grounds for a lot of solitary um a lot of solitary bees and caterpillars over winter and things like that so basically a lot of our cultural practices are really the number one um decline because there are so many other stressors, such as the pesticides and diseases, but those don't make as much of a difference to healthy, otherwise healthy bees. 
Um, if they okay. were well fed and well populated, those things wouldn't be the tipping point that they are. So I definitely focus most on the habitat and um, increasing forage and food. But then of course the pesticide exposure, um, basically pesticides shouldn't be used preventatively. Um, if they need yeah, to be yeah. used, it should be because you see a pest. But so many people are just ingrained as part of our um, ways of taking care of our land that just like, oh, it's once a month, let's spray, even though there's really yeah. nothing to spray for. And that just kind of gets things out of whack. And But overall, that would make less of a difference if there was enough um, habitat and forage. Yeah, if they had the place to live, it wouldn't be as as harsh of a factor right so what do you know about um bees being brought into california and used in the almond orchards because that's something i hear a lot about yes a lot of our bees i want to say it's close to 80 percent of the bees in the united states um travel to california for the almond bloom um and mm. the pollination is basically it's Pollination is a bigger industry than honey for bees. And it's kind of a double-edged sword because the bees are so necessary to creating, to keeping up with demand and defeating our country. But at the same time, um, it's the culture that created the need is kind of a problem. Um, the monoculture way of agriculture and mm -hmm. where they're, where it's only almonds, so it's only blooming once a year. So there's nothing to sustain the native bees or the native pollinators that could have been there on their own um, throughout the rest of the year. So that's why things like why honeybees need to get brought in because there's not a natural population. And that's yeah. kind of one of those things where no one's necessarily to blame. It's just what's happened. And we need to kind of address that more culturally. So for Hannah's honeycomb, do you got do you travel your bees at all or do they stay put? No, I don't. Um I keep them. Um I've got a couple different spots where I have them around me. Um I'm very small scale. I'm not a commercial keeper, anything like that. I really focus more on the education and um outreach like that. But I mean, I know commercial keepers, I there's no beekeepers who don't love bees. So I don't love yeah. the villainization of um, migratory beekeepers. I don't think it's that they're to blame for filling that niche that's needed. Um, but I think that just overall, there are better farming practices that we could follow that would maybe reduce our dependency on them. Right. Like everybody's got to put food on their table. You yeah, know? it makes sense. I can see that. Um, so what do you do? Like, you said that you're interested in the education stuff. So, I mean, you have, you have a beautiful Instagram. We, you know, I'm sure you, if you look at your notifications right now, you'll probably see like 30 likes from me because I'm like, oh, this is so pretty or this is really cool. Um, but do you do any hands-on um, training or education for people that, you know, are interested in beekeeping or who want to learn more about bees and pollinators? That is definitely something I want to do more of. And I had planned to launch a few different courses this year. Um, this year ended up not being the year to do that. 
um, right. with COVID and everything like that. So I'm trying to, fo- I've been focusing more um, on digital content and ways that I can get that message to people right at their home. But in the future, mm-hmm. I really would love to do more hands-on classes. I would love to do more demonstration gardens of um, planting for our pollinators, using the native plants that are around us that just benefit so many things and not just honeybees, they benefit the native insects and then the birds that feed on those insects and just the whole ecosystem. It starts with the bees as the as the <laughs> gateway, but there's so much more to it. Oh, that's really cool. So um, for Central Floridians, what are some what are some things that they should be planting or how can they support our pollinators through gardening? That's a great question. So in Florida, particularly, we have a real issue with invasive tropical plants that people use in their landscape um, because they're um, pretty, they were trendy, um, they're low maintenance-ish, <laughs> depending. Yeah. Um, but so people have been accustomed to replacing the na- our native plants our native flowering plants with these tropical leafy plants that don't flower and they are invasive and they'll kind of push out um, the native flowers. And since pollinators have evolved so closely with flowers, there are species specific, um, like there's bees that are specific to certain flowers. So when those plants disappear, those bee species disappear. So one of the best things you can do um, as a homeowner would be to kind of evaluate your landscape and see where you could incorporate more native plants. And there are so many beautiful options, and they're so much easier to maintain when you choose things that are well-suited to your environment. Yeah, like native species that don't require a lot of intensive TLC. Yeah, that don't require, they don't even need extra fertilizer, or extra irrigation once you have them set up if they're in the right place. So it's so, it conserves on so many levels and just kind of the back, I, I love the idea of backyard conservation, um, just kind of bringing nature to you, that you don't need to go out and find nature, that if you plant it, they will come. I love that. We, we live in Okinawa. I'm sure anybody that actually follows this podcast is probably like we get it you have a backyard or you have a balcony you live in the middle of a concrete jungle but I was telling Will like I was going through your Instagram and I was like she's really living my best life right now like you're can you walk us through your garden and your compost and um you know your bee setup like I I'm a little jealous I'm gonna say it just looking through your Instagram, I'm like, these are all the things I want to have. It's so funny that you say that because, I mean, it. you just start right where you are. And I was there just, you know, a year ago. Like, I'd look back to where I was a year ago or two years ago, and I basically had, like, one potted plant <laughs> at a beehive. <laughs> yeah. And it's just really – it. It's amazing how fast it can cascade um, once you start kind of seeing all the different places you can add things to. Um, So at my house, I have an area of a wildflower, like a little wildflower meadow type space that I like to do for the native flowers to kind of encourage those more rare type of bees that I hope to come more this spring. And then I also have my vegetable garden and some herbs. Um, They're also not like not necessarily native 
plants that bees also do love, such as borage. Um, that's a great nectar source. Um, so I do like to plant a variety of pollinator friendly plants. And then I just kind of, it's important to me to have everything have intention. So even if it's a vegetable, uh, planting for vegetables or planting for pollinators or just planting something that brings me joy, I still just, that's, I just wanted to have an intention behind it, not just smacking this shrub right here because that's what everybody's doing. Yeah. So um, I saw that you, I was looking at your, your 2021 goals. Um, so you want to complete a master gardener course. Can you tell us a bit about that and how that kind of helps you out? Yes, I can tell you about that for sure. Um, I'm working on that right now. That is through my county extension office. Um, and that is a, it's a 12 week educational course. Um, and then it's a volunteer hours through the county and that's um, to complete it. And that's doing educational outreach in various different ways. It's a science-based program um, that's through the land-grant universities. So ours is through University of Florida. Um, okay. And it's just kind of an all-encompassing, it's very well-rounded. It covers everything from you know vegetable gardening to tree pruning, lawn care, and things that I wouldn't necessarily have thought that I was passionate about, but I do, it's great information to know and for going forward and kind of for how I want to change things. I feel like I need to know what it is that I'm up against. Yeah, that's really cool. So your actual, going back to a little bit of just, I want to talk more about like the technical side of beekeeping because I really want to get a, you know, a hive, but I, have never done anything with bees before. So I see like on Instagram all the time, I see ads for like the flow hive and it seems like they market it. Like it's so simple. Like, Oh yeah, you just set it out here. Then you go and turn the tap and honey comes out. But how much, like how often do you need to check on your bees? Like to care for them? Like how, what's the process that goes into that? So with flow hives, flow hives themselves are not bad. Um, I wouldn't say that. And but they and they do make honey harvesting simpler. That being said, the care of the bees is exactly the same as it would be for any other hive. The only thing that's different is where the honey is um, harvested from. So essentially for nine months of the year, it'll be exactly the same as a regular Langstroth hive, which is what I have. Um, and those do require um, pretty often checks. It kind of depends on season, but the main thing is for checking queens, it's all based around that 21 days that I mentioned earlier, because if there are any queen issues, you have that 21 day period basically to replace her before the population is irreparable. Mm -hmm. um, and so with that in mind, I try to check, get, I check my hives probably about once a week. I'm not always doing a full inspection. Other, you can kind of just tell from the outside how they're doing, um, but you do need to do monthly mite checks. Um, I'm not sure how the Varroa are in Japan, but in the U in the United States and especially Florida, uh, Varroa mites are the bane of every beekeeper's existence. <laughs> yeah, we've heard about those. <laughs> so that's definitely me. The one of the main things that we have to check for is those Varroa mites. 
the clean health and to make sure that they're bringing in enough pollen and nectar. And if they don't have enough stores, then you want to feed them um, some nutritional supplement of some sort. So is that inspection, does that involve like, you know, taking the lid off and pulling out every single like, uh, I don't know what they're called, like little slats? Uh, the frames, frames, I don't do that every week. Um, you can kind of, it depends on your goal of that inspection. So if I, I will go in with my list of things I need to do that check. Um, but say it was a check where I'm just checking for the queen. If I happen to find the queen on the first frame, then I put it back in, I close it back up and call it a day. Um, so it really just depends, um, if you can find everything you need right at the beginning, or if you have to keep going until you found it all, but usually you don't need to go through them all. Um, you can get in and out in about 10 minutes in one hive if you know what you're looking for. Nice. Uh, so I saw one picture you posted on Instagram where you were like holding a frame, you had your beekeeper hood on, but you had no gloves on. Like your fingers were like right next to all these. I saw bees. that too. And I was like, oh. and I was like, how often do you get stung? And like, do you build up a tolerance? Like, how does that work? So how often I get stung really depends. Sometimes I'll get stung five times in a week. Sometimes it'll be a couple weeks between stings. I personally don't go that out of my way to avoid stings. So it really depends. If you really don't want to be stung, you can wear more equipment. For me, it helps me to be more conscious of the moves that I'm making. If um, I don't have gloves on, I'm not risking accidentally squishing bees with the gloves. And that in turn kind of keeps them calmer. So it it's one of those personal preference things. Um, it is, I think that there are many benefits to uh, bee venom, and I think that they ha it has some like immune system properties, but of course that's, everybody's different, everybody reacts differently to it. Yeah. So that's such a, it's such a personal preference and how you feel and what you're comfortable with, because if you're going to risk dropping a frame, that's certainly not any better than, I mean, it'd be better right. to wear gloves and no. Yeah, we watched a documentary about bee venom, so that was really that was really cool. Um, so, what are some of you said that there are some benefits? And I'm not, you know, full disclosure. I'm not saying that you know go out and go get stunned by bees. Uh, that doesn't really sound like a fun thing to do. <laughs> but uh, what are some of the benefits of bee venom that you were just mentioning? Well, anecdotally, it's been used for very long time for generations um, that beekeepers have sworn by it for things like arthritis. Mm -hmm. Personally, after I get a sting or two, I don't know whether it's just my head, but I just feel better. I feel more energized. Um, I feel less achy. I do feel itchy, <laughs> but, <Yeah>. but um, it's definitely just anecdotal. I think maybe it's just, I feel more connected with the bees. I kind of try to think of it as a gift, like that, okay, I deserve that, but I'm going to just take it. Um, but it's really, it's such a personal thing, whether, I mean, because there always is a risk of allergic reaction. So I don't want to ever play that down. Yeah. Um, but for me, it's there. been um, beneficial. And I try to get stung often enough because there is, kind of a middle ground of where if you get stung 
occasionally you are more likely to develop an allergy than if you get stung either steadily or not at all. Oh, that's really cool. I've never been stung by a bee before. I've been stung once in my whole life. And uh, like, I, I love bees. That's why, you know, one of our main, our main efforts is to restore pollinator populations. And I mean, I have a honeybee tattoo. Like I, I don't know. I love bees. I was always that kid that would like scoop them up out of the pool and like blow on them until, until they, you know, are warmed up a little bit and can move along. But, um, I like, I've held bees before. Like I, I love them. I think they're beautiful. I love interacting with them and how they'll just climb on you and be super chill, but I've never been stung by one. And so my whole life, I'm like, maybe it's because we have a connection. <laughs> maybe it's I'm because like, you've never been around a beehive. <laughs> I know. I'm like, no, we're really cool. We we have this this understanding. <laughs> but um, so you do you sell honey then? I actually do not sell honey at the moment. Um, I've been focusing on more just growing my bees. Um, so mm-hmm. in beekeeping the management practices that you choose kind of depend or kind of depend on your overall goal. And I am, have never been, I'm sorry. I have never aimed to be a honey producer. I do harvest some honey for myself and my family um, when there's excess, but I don't sell it to me. It's so precious that I couldn't, it means more to me than the money I would get for it. Oh, absolutely. So um, not at the moment, but maybe in the future if I end up with a big enough operation where I have that much excess, but at the moment, that's not my main goal. I think for us, we are wanting to have a, like a more homesteading, self-sustaining mindset where I would, I would absolutely love for us to have enough honey, like for our family, because I'm like, why, like the idea of keeping bees and then buying store-bought, store-bought honey is just insane to me. So I would really like to have enough, you know, enough hives to sustain us, sustain the bees and just have that amazing feeling of like, you know, you know, when you're like, you're, you have a stewardship over the bees and you're helping take care of them. And then they're giving you this honey. And I think that's a really, I don't know, it's a beautiful thing you got going on. (laughs) Yeah, it's like liquid gold. You just appreciate it so much when you've put in so much work to create it. I mean, not that we create it, but to creating the system for it too. Yeah. How much? How much space does a hive take up? Like I've seen, like uh, I feel like they're pretty standard, like the like the you call them Langstroth hives, but like the they're like boxes, right? Yeah. How much space do those take up? Um. Not not so much like the, close the space like a, of the hive, but the two, how much space do the bees need to move about? Um, so do you mean like how much land do you need to keep them on? Essentially? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, there are people who keep bees on balconies and on roofs, and really it just depends on your local regulations because uh, bees will forage up to two miles away. So as long as there are no people just crossing right where they're coming out of their hive, so I would say, you know, maybe six feet in front. And if you're in um, an urban area, what a lot of people do is face their hives to a wall or a fence so that the bees have to fly up and over and they're above um, 
head level where people are walking and mm. people don't even really notice that they're there. That's so cool. So one of the first times we talked, you were talking about how to be really careful of people that are saying that are selling things in order to save the bees. And you kind of corrected me on some stuff. So can you tell me a little bit about some mis- mis- misconceptions when it comes to bees and their populations and things like that? So there are a lot of issues facing bees, honeybees and native bees alike. The difference between what the honeybees are facing and what the native bees are facing is that honeybees are domesticated and we rely on them significantly for agriculture. So there's um, a large economic incentive to keep them alive, to keep learning about how to maintain them, to treat their diseases. There's tons of continuing continuing education on how to best improve their health. And so that is very important, and I don't want to take away from that. But what is often neglected are the native bees who are suffering from those same issues Um, the same habitat loss, the same diseases, um, but they are not managed. So there's nobody to treat them for those diseases. There's nobody to feed them nutritional um, supplements when things are low. So I kind of want people to know. I'm sorry. Our child just walked in. (laughs) You have snacks. I'll get you one of those afterwards, okay? (laughs) Sorry about that. Um, so yeah, the native bees—they don't make money for people, so, so there's people, less protection. Yeah, people aren't right. so keen. To, like, what's and in so, it for me? Yeah, so that's like whole species that are declining. Honeybees are getting more difficult to manage, but they aren't necessarily declining in population um, because they're managed and they are. And bred accordingly to make up for those losses. So you've mentioned a few, like just you know, in our back and forth, you've mentioned a few conservations that help wild, you know, the, the, the native bees. What are some of what are some of the the I guess the foundations that you would suggest people checking out? Or like how can we how can people help the native the native bees? So what people can do to help the native bees, help the honeybees as well. So it's not that you have to pick or choose. It's more just that you have to kind of know that it's a broader thing than just the honeybees. Um, But so some organizations that I would recommend supporting, if that's something that you're looking into um, or learning more about, um, there's the Xerxes Society, which is um, invertebrate conservation. They cover a whole variety of insects. Um, And then there's uh, the Pollinator Partnership. They cover things like the Monarchs in California, Mm -hmm. um, a lot of outreach and education there. Then there's the Albadon Society, which people don't necessarily think that the bird watching and things like that would relate. But the things that are helping the birds are the things that restore the insect population because those are part of their food chain. So they have similar goals to, as well. Um, so that's another great organization. Yeah, I mean, what what helps the honeybees help, you know, helps the native bees, helps the insects. And I think it's really important that we mention that, you know, just as one insect's health isn't the end all and be all, we need to make sure that we are 
producing situations and, you know, supporting the environmental factors that help all the insects because, you know, every insect, every species has such an important role to play in the environment. I mean, they wouldn't be there if they wouldn't be there if they weren't important, you know? Yes, I so agree with that. And I love honeybees because I feel like they're kind of the relatable face behind it and you can get people excited about them and it's just a great educational tool. But at the end of the day, yes, it's definitely kind of a symbolism for so much more. It's so important. So I wanted to circle back to honey a little bit because I feel like when people think of bees, they think of honey and they think of, you know, the benefits of honey. So um, when our listeners are at the store, at the farmer's market, how can they choose the best, the healthiest honey? Talk to us about raw and filtered honey, you know, the what's good, what's bad, that kind of thing. So the really tough thing is that there's not much regulation about labeling of honey in grocery stores. So while you do want raw, unfiltered, and local honey, you can't necessarily guarantee that just because it's on a bottle that it is those things. So really the best way that you can make sure that you're getting the real deal and supporting the right people are to kind of get in your community and get to find a local beekeeper. Um, And the farmer's market is a great place. They'll often be set up and have a stand and they'll tell you about your, their bees and, I mean, the, the beekeepers with the passion behind it, are they're going to talk your ear off and you're going to yes, know. They yes, they will. <laughs> yeah, you'll know what you're getting. Um, and if you can't find one locally or if you're not going to farmer's markets right now for whatever reason, obviously things are a little bit different right now with COVID depending when you're listening yeah. to this. Um, but there are plenty of places online you can find on Facebook Marketplace. You could contact, again, the county extension office is just such a great resource, and they'll put you in contact with local beekeepers that would be happy to help you. That's really cool. Yeah, we um, I miss farmers markets. We don't really have them here in, in Oki, um, but... I, we went a lot in Hawaii and, um, in Chico there, I would always buy like the little honey sticks and, um, and things like that. I definitely miss, I definitely miss the markets. And I know that there's a ton of people out there who either can't go to the market or, you know, like I said, they're kind of staying away because of COVID and everything. But, um, yeah, I miss, I miss having that connection with my food and, um, so you grow, you grow a lot of your own, um, a lot of your own vegetables. What um, what varieties do you have? Um, right now it's kind of our cool season crops. So I'm doing some lettuce, some kale, um, some bok choy. I'm really just playing with the greens right now and seeing what grows and seeing what my family will eat um, before. <laughs> and then next year we're gonna kind of go pick and choose a little bit more specific ones to plant more of instead of the variety that I've been doing right now. Yeah, right um, now we're, we're growing bok choy and arugula. Are we growing spinach too? Yeah, we have like a, a spring mix uh, set of seeds. So okay. we have a few different types of lettuce growing. And we have, uh, once we, so um, we've been planting bok choy as we get it from the store. When we like cut it, and then we like plant it and we've been having some good luck with that. Um, so I think we have, I think we probably have like 10 bok choy plants now, but it's exciting. I mean, it's all just container garden stuff, um, on our little balcony. 
but um, you can do so much with that though yeah we're we're really excited we um we planted pumpkins oh, so fun. yeah so hopefully when these when we harvest them in may then we'll replant them for an autumn an autumn harvest but yeah we uh i mean Will asked me to send him pictures of the plants because he wanted to show um, one of his coworkers what we got going on. And I didn't realize just how many plants we had. And I'm like, can I was like taking pictures and I was like, dude, like we got we got a problem here. It escalates quickly. It does. Like someone just gifted us a banana plant and now I'm like, where am I gonna put a banana plant? Like, do I put it next to my Next to my pumpkin, next to the rosemary, like we got, we got, I think one of the, one of the hardest factors we have though is we don't get bees up where we're at. So we can't, like we've tried doing, um, we've tried doing strawberries, but we're on a a third floor and it's really windy where we're at. And so we don't get any bees up here. Yeah. I think the only time I've seen one bee the entire, we've lived here like a year and a half. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, then you might have to hand pollinate your pumpkin flowers when those show up. So just keep an eye out for that. Um, you can yeah, use like a tiny little paintbrush. That'll work. Oh, yeah. We went out there with Q-tips before and like, you know, dabbled on all the flowers. Yeah. And stuff. yeah. But we definitely don't do as good of a job as our little, well, it's the bees. Yeah. But, um, so, yeah. how, so how many, oh, I wanted to ask you, I saw the green bee on your Instagram, what, how many species do you have and how is the bee green? Are you messing with me? <laughs> um, so I don't keep those bees in a hive per se. Um, those are, there's a lot of solitary bees. So there's actually 20,000 species of bees worldwide and only like eight of those are honeybees and only two of those are commonly domesticated. So, oh, wow. Yeah. So I, one of my favorite things to do and why I love planting such a variety of flowers is to kind of, um, see how many species I can get come, um, is one of my favorite things to kind of collect them uh, in my yard. And so uh, those green sweat bees, they're called metallic sweat bees. And there's a few different, um, genuses of them. Um, I love finding them. They're so much faster than the honeybees. So I have a lot of pride of the pictures I get I get it them because they're much harder. <laughs> That's so funny. Well, um, is there anything that you want to tell our listeners before we kind of wrap things up? What's your, what's what's your leaving speech? Um, I guess ju- I just would like people to know that nature doesn't have to be something far away that you have to pack up and go visit. Um, that it can be right here if you just plant, let things grow, and look for it. Um, I see bees and life in, I see it in parking lot medians. I mean, it's everywhere. And if you just give it a chance, um, we can bring green space back to our living spaces and not rely on um, conservation areas if we start the conservation ourselves. Absolutely. Awesome. So how can people find you? I know uh, you're on Instagram. Are you on any other social medias? Um, I'm on Instagram and TikTok as Hannah's Honeycomb. Um, I'm on Clubhouse as Hannah Mather. And then you can find my blog at hannahshoneycomb.com. Um, that is still a work in progress, but I hope to have more up and revamped soon. 
Oh, that's exciting. Awesome. Well, we can't wait to see, you know, your future content and keep learning from you. Um, we really appreciate you coming on. Um, yeah. And next time I'm in Florida, maybe I can swing by and come check out your hives. <laughs> yes, please do. I'd love to have you. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Uh, and thank you for working with me through these technical difficulties. Oh, yeah, of course. All right. Have we'll talk more one. soon. Thank you. Bye. Feeling social? Follow us at the Feel Good Community Podcast on Instagram for daily inspiration, our blog, and behind the scenes footage. Join the Feel Good Community Podcast on Facebook where you can read interesting articles, ask us questions, and share progress of your own journey. Oh, 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 oh,